Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, November 29th, 2023. As listeners of this show surely know, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is embroiled in a federal investigation into his campaign and administration, an investigation that broke into public view in early November when Adams's chief campaign fundraiser's home was raided by the FBI, part of a series of raids carried out that day and other investigatory measures taken before and after that included the seizure of the mayor's electronic devices. Federal authorities, led by prosecutors at the Southern District of New York, where Damian Williams is the U.S. attorney in charge, are apparently looking at potential foreign influence from Turkey in Adams's campaign, ties between Adams and Turkish entities, whether any undue governmental favors were done, and more. There's a lot we still don't know, which includes where this is all headed. But the fact is that Mayor Adams is now in somewhat familiar territory for recent chief executives at the city and state levels here in New York, most recently, both Mayor Bill de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo were the subject of major investigations by that same office, the Southern District of New York, when it was run by then U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, among other investigative entities that looked into uh, both of them. Adams is now amid a media firestorm even more intense than what's usually and always immense scrutiny of the mayor of New York City. On this investigation, on related matters and other aspects of his work as mayor and his political future, like things related to his recent budget cuts and and much more. But today on the show, we're discussing governing while under investigation, crisis communications and related matters. I'm pleased to be joined by Matt Wing, a communications veteran who has worked for elected officials, including then public advocate Bill de Blasio, and then Governor Andrew Cuomo. He's also worked for the company Uber. He consulted on Catherine Garcia's 2021 mayoral campaign, and he's had a number of other clients. In January of this year, 2023, he founded the communications and marketing consultancy called Wingspan. Matt Wing worked in the Cuomo administration when it was being investigated for interference with an anti-corruption commission that the governor had established back in 2013, and that investigation unfolded in 2014. And Matt Wing can speak from firsthand experience about what it's like to be at the highest levels of New York government and politics amid an investigation that could bring down an administration or be extremely damaging or wind up with limited repercussions. Matt Wing is with me here in just a moment. First, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts. I've had some great recent conversations with guests looking at everything from previewing the 2024 elections in New York, which are going to be extremely consequential, especially for the House of Representatives, to a discussion about how zoning rules factor into New York City's housing crisis. I also was joined on the show recently by New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams. I had a conversation a few weeks ago on the show with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander and other great guests and episodes. You can find them all at Max Politics wherever you get podcasts. But Matt Wing is with me now. Matt, thanks for joining me. How are you? 
Good. How are you, Ben? It's good to be here. I'm doing all right. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. So, you know, there's so much swirling around the mayor and his administration and his campaign right now. And as you watch all this unfold, Mayor Adams and the people around him, especially his top aides, have had to make this long series of quick and important decisions, especially in those first early days when the news broke into public view, when there was reporting that the mayor's fundraiser, Brianna Suggs, had had her home raided by the FBI and they were removing documents and devices. And the mayor had just landed in Washington, D.C. and decided to return to New York. So there's all these decisions that have to be made by both the principal, the mayor here, and people around him about what to do, what to say, what information to divulge. So I thought this would be a really interesting conversation for people both to touch on your firsthand experience, as I mentioned, but also just sort of broader lessons around this stuff that you may have to offer or things that you feel like you still aren't quite sure of, but are things that you think about when you're offering uh, communications advice or doing crisis communications and so forth. So uh, let's get into it a little bit here. Let's start very specific here. What did you make of the mayor's decision? He landed in Washington, D.C. He talked about going down there for important meetings related to trying to get more federal help for, uh, for the migrant crisis. He gets to D.C., news breaks that his fundraiser's house had been raided, and he decided to return home that day. That was basically his first major public decision related to this investigation once it became public. What did you make of that choice? I mean, a, a, a lot has been discussed about that decision, and I think it's a, it was very obviously uh, an emotional or it, sorry, it, it seemed to be an emotional decision because it was such a dumb one. Um, and taking a step back, I think it's important to remember for all the people involved, the mayor and his top staff, when these things happen, it's really it really shakes you off your game. It's both scary, intimidating, usually in the world of politics and communications, particularly in New York. You're dealing with a lot of incoming from the press stories that are hard to control, stories that uh, you wish weren't being reported that make you defensive. But when you throw in the added layer and pressure of a federal investigation, the stakes are raised, uh, both because not only do you have to deal with the problem of how do you manage this in the media, but what you do in the media can have very real consequences for if the investigation leads to indictments or doesn't lead to indictments. If you're indicted if what you said hurts you in the court of law or helps you in a court of law. Um, so I think if the mayor and his and his aides were being honest with themselves, looking back at it, they they would they would not have had him deviate from Washington, D.C. because it it, it generated so much extra attention on what was happening with regards to the investigation. It signaled uh, a, a sensitivity and importance for the mayor personally. And his explanations um, of why he went back just don't really make any sense. Logically, he, in um, one of his media availabilities, first said that he he's the kind of leader who likes to be on the ground. He wanted to show both his campaign team and the city hall team that he was there and leading by being present. Um, but again, that, that that doesn't really track because when you're when you're 
facing a raid by the FBI of someone on your campaign team. There's not like there's some huge benefit or moment to you being present there. In addition, he he then contradicted himself and said, well, actually, I wanted to be there because I'm a, I'm a man and Miss Suggs was going through a really difficult uh, moment and I felt bad for her and I wanted to comfort her. And then in that same press conference, one question later uh, or a few questions later, admits that he didn't talk to her that day. So if you were going back to comfort her because you were so worried about her, why would you then um, not be speaking with her that day? It just it just doesn't add up. And I, I think the the person who you he's to some degree more and more deferred to in these communications with the media on this investigation, his um, his uh, I, I think uh, the title is special counsel Lisa Zornberg has taken the more smart and appropriate strategy that you should take when you're facing this kind of scrutiny, which is say as little as possible, because mm-hmm. usually, you know, and the mayor is a really gifted communicator. He uh, he's often really good when facing tough questions at distracting at, at sort of making news in other areas to get away from whatever the tough topic of the day is. Um, but this isn't an investigation is one where the more you say, the more questions you invite that are then going to be hard to answer. And so the best course of action is to, from the get go, basically set up a firewall where you say, look, there's an investigation. We're going to do everything that's appropriate and you know cooperate fully. Um, and in order to prevent the investigation from being impeded in any way, we won't be commenting on it publicly. And yes, the press are going to hound you and they're going to continue to write stories about it and they're going to ask you more and more questions. But the more you say, the more material you give, you give them to ask about and the more risk you create for yourself. None of these stories are going to be good for you. It's not like if a reporter asks a tough question about why the FBA raided a city hall staffer's house and your campaign aide's house, you're going to have some great answer that's going to change the story. The story is going to be bad. So let the story be bad and don't put yourself in further jeopardy. So I guess that leads me to a, a two-prong question, which is if you're operating as a government official and at least some of this relates to government work, you know, potentially – don't you sort of owe the public more transparency than that? I mean, you're sort of coming at it clearly here in this strategy as, uh, you know, you want to sort of protect the principle and, you know, be very careful about how damaging the media attention is. But isn't there, well, A, isn't there some responsibility of transparency? And then what about the notion that sort of full transparency is it's it's also its own sort of potentially good strategy, or is that not a potentially good strategy? When you're dealing with an investigation, public transparency and 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 media spin as, as your priority goal ultimately is harmful. And that may not be because you necessarily have something to hide. It's because one of the things that happens in a federal investigation is you are at risk of having yourself and your aides um, brought in to the U.S. Attorney's Office under subpoena or voluntarily for an interview, in which ca- in, during which you're you're questioned, and you know if the FBI is in the room and you lie to the FBI, that's a federal crime. So if you make statements in public that then you contradict in a private interview, even to a small extent, you're putting yourself at risk. The more you say on the matter, the more material you're giving the federal prosecutors and the FBI to ask you about, and the more scenarios you're creating for you to contradict something that someone else said, maybe not maliciously, maybe because you just 
remember it differently. Um, and, and you just, you don't, the benefit of whatever you're going to say publicly for what's going to be a bad story weighed against that consequence is just, it's so out of skew. It doesn't make sense. But even putting that aside to your, to your larger question, you know, does the mayor or his team or his campaign owe the public transparency around an ongoing investigation? I actually think they don't at all. And, and, and here's why it's one thing when you're indicted, uh, as Senator Bob Menendez has been and his wife. And there's a series of charges laid out in a court document um, that that lists, you know, allegations of wrongdoing. Even in that instance, you're innocent until proven guilty. At least that's what we say. Um, but with regards, you know, when you're a public official, you're not really given that that benefit of doubt. Even frankly, in a courtroom, more, more often than not, defendants are not given that benefit of a doubt. Most juries assume you're there because you did something wrong even if you're not guilty of the ultimate crime. Um, I think before you even get to that stage, when you're just under investigation, which means the federal government or a local district attorney is doing their job and looking to see if something is wrong, it, it's it, it, frankly, it shouldn't be in the public realm at all, especially for public officials, because I, I think a lot of investigations ultimately lead to nothing. And the, Mor- the Moreland investigation is, is a great example of this. There was a ton of press coverage about it. There was a lot of scrutiny of it. There was a lot of commentary about it, both from the U.S. attorney at the time, from candidates, because it was during Governor Cuomo's then re-election. Ultimately, at the end of the day, not a single charge was brought. So what what was owed to the public in that in that instance was did did the governor did did any of us or did the U.S. attorney were we were we sort of under some mandate to tell the public, well, the U.S. attorney doesn't you know, isn't sure about how the governor um, uh, used his authority with regards to the Moreland Act. And we think he and he thinks maybe something inappropriate happened. So while he's trying to discover that the entire thing should be monologued to the press, I don't really think so. I actually think it's it's incumbent on everyone. And obviously it's hard because the press job is to report news and it's news um, to to avoid the feeding frenzy that creates this this urge to play up coverage up into the indictment because people want to be first. Sometimes there's not an indictment, in which case, what was the point? What was what did the public learn that was so important? Um, well, and- well par- certainly part of these discussions, and this relates to a lot of conversation, even currently related to the former governor, uh, Cuomo, uh, you know, there, there, there's certainly things, and we we heard this from the former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and we've heard this from other prosecutors and and such that uh, just because there aren't charges filed doesn't mean there there were question you know questionable behavior wasn't done, ethical lines blurred. Uh, we we saw prosecutors say that Mayor De Blasio had uh, you know really sort of like. Uh, cross the spirit of the law, even if they weren't going to charge him with actually breaking the law. So there's gradations there that do apply to sort of the behavior of elected officials and politicians that may deserve some real airing out in public. I it, It's perfectly appropriate for it to be aired out in public. Mm-hmm. My question is, is it appropriate for prosecutors and prosecutors' offices who are conducting investigations that are not in the gray area or not even gray area in the more in the moral area of ethics, but are in the black and white area of the law. Mm. Are they the appropriate people to be doing the airing out, especially when the power that they hold in that dynamic is so great 
because of their, they can issue subpoenas because just the fact that they say I'm, you know, let's say tomorrow the U.S. attorney says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to investigate Ben Max just because I'm interested in seeing if perhaps he's committed a crime that immediately in the in the eyes of the media, you know, Cast, or even even in your general reputation, put aside the media, cast doubt on you because it's it's an authority figure saying something may be wrong here, and that's the part that I'm that I would say is is probably not appropriate and probably shouldn't be in the public realm until there's an indictment. If good government groups, if opposing candidates, if other elected officials, um, and other agencies whose purview is this. Uh, is this space is appropriate expenditures of campaign funds, disclosures of campaign funds, want to air out um, discrepancies by the mayor and his team, they should. That That's entirely appropriate. I just don't think people with active subpoena power who then can bring charges should be doing that because the implication is if they think something could be wrong, then they're going to indict. Mm-hmm. And if and and oftentimes they don't because they're they're by and large responsible um federal prosecutors who know that they're not going to bring a charge that they they don't feel uh, they can likely prove in a court of law. And if right, that's anyway. the bar that they're, they're, they're weighing it against, you know, comments, public commentary on it before they've made that decision probably isn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. Right. And there might be very valid reasons for opening certain investigations or following right. certain threads that then don't lead to to charges, obviously, and, and uh, less so sort of on, although surely it's you know happened at some point uh, over time or or many points over time but less on the whims of someone ab- over political differences or things of that nature where in most cases you know prosecutors uh, i think you know act relatively responsibly about ways in which they decide to open up investigations although there's always those split second decisions around which threads to follow and what you know I- investigatory measures to pursue and and all of that that goes into into a lot of this um okay i i briefly mentioned uh this investigation where you were communications director for governor cuomo at the time you mentioned moreland just to give listeners a little background because now we're talking a decade ago so i have a lot of people probably listening here who are actually not that familiar with what happened you're, ma- you're making us feel old I, I hey i i hear you i hear you um so so let's get into sort of the specifics of this experience. I'll very briefly give a, a a quick background here, but you know, fill in any blanks that I leave if you if you want on sort of just a very brief sort of context, which is Governor Andrew Cuomo wins election for the first time in 2010, uh, comes in as governor in 2011. There have been all sorts of uh, ethics issues and corruption problems in Albany and elected officials. There were additional corruption scandals involving members of the legislature. Uh, The governor came in promising to clean up state government. Uh, He was also coming in not that long after Governor Elliot Spitzer had resigned. And then Governor David Patterson didn't seek election because of his own scandal. So Andrew Cuomo came in to sort of clean up state government and there wasn't really ethics reform being passed. And he got to a point in the middle of 2013 where he announced, along with the attorney general of the state at the time, Eric Schneiderman, that they were establishing a commission to investigate uh, public corruption, corruption in government. It was 
impaneled under the authority of the Moreland Act. So it became a Moreland Commission. Uh, this was a commission to investigate public corruption. And so it was impaneled with 25 members and three co-chairs. Um, and it went on to do a lot of initial investigations, and, and we can get into a little bit more of that potentially. But then not that long into its lifespan in uh, the budget deal of March 2014, the governor and the legislature agreed on an ethics reform package. And as part of that, Governor Cuomo agreed to shut down this Moreland Commission to investigate public corruption even though he had said it would continue on longer and he hadn't sort of indicated previously that he was going to trade it away if he got an ethics deal that he wanted. Um, and then very quickly, the U.S. attorney that I mentioned, Preet Bharara at the time, expressed concerns about that that decision and, uh, and decided to uh, sort of request and demand that the Moreland Commission turn over its files uh, to him and opened up an investigation into how the governor had handled uh, the commission. Is that a decent overview in your in your view of what happened? It's 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 a good summary, but I'm going to add a, a little bit of color from from what I saw from where Please. I sat. So, <clears throat> two important points of context before Governor Cuomo establishes the Moreland Commission with the Attorney General. The first is is that. In his first term, he was on a real winning streak. He had passed marriage equality, which had uh, failed to pass under a Democratic state Senate not that long before. It, he passed it through a Republican Senate. He would passed the SAFE Act, which was one of, he would say, the strongest uh, gun control legislation in the country. Um, and, uh, and he had uh, passed on-time balanced budgets which had eluded um, previous governors. So he really, you know, the, this, the one area where he hadn't really delivered on his campaign mandate from when, where he, when, when he had run was ethics. Mm -hmm. When he announced his campaign, he did it by the, what is now the DOE building in the back of city hall, formerly the headquarters of um, uh, uh, boss tweeds County machine. And he had said in his announcement uh, something to the effect of, you know, the, the the corruption in Albany would today today would make Boss Tweed blush. He had passed an ethics package which created the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, uh, ethics also known as JCOPE, often referred to as JJOPE because it had such little authority, including, importantly, it didn't really have the authority to subpoena the legislature. So this was just an area where he hadn't had a real win and he was still being criticized by editorial boards and good government groups and he was sensitive to it. And then... It, before he established it, the, the impetus for establishing it was in April 2013, Malcolm Smith, who was the former Democratic minority uh, and majority leader when the Democrats were in control of the Senate, and a New York City Council member, Daniel Halloran, were both indicted by the Southern District on corruption charges. He, in that moment, he, he, he was usually really good at seizing crises to, to, to motivate the legislature, which didn't want to do things into into acting. And I think he both felt defensive because it seemed he, he the way he presented it when we would have conversations internally was, 
I'm going around saying we cleaned up Albany. How can I say that when they're arresting a state senator and a minority, you know, former leader of the legislature? Um, and so he felt like because of that, he had to create a Moreland Commission. That probably, in hindsight, would be mistake number one. You know, t- today, it, looking back where, you know, Shelley Silver was indicted, went to jail, then Dean Skillis indicted, convicted, went to jail. You know, the idea that you would you would reactively to uh, one state senator being indicted feel like you, you would have to convene this big moral commission probably was a, was a tactical error, especially given where it ended up. Uh, the second thing he decided was that he wanted it to be really big. He appointed... Mark Green, his former opponent um, in the attorney general's race when he ran, um, I, I believe, back in 2006, he appointed um, Kathleen Rice, who was uh, later became a, a um, I don't know if she was a congresswoman then, but became a congresswoman um, and half, you know, half a dozen, if not a dozen other other folks. And that is just that's a lot of personalities. So it's really difficult to manage. Uh, and they very quickly decided they were going to operate with a pretty wide mandate. The Moreland Act, which goes back to 1907, basically gives them the authority to uh, interview witnesses, issue subpoenas, hold hearings, um, and seize material that's relevant to the investigation for any part of the state government. Um, and, And they exercise that in particular in ways that um, as it was reported, the governor didn't particularly appreciate or like because it verged into um, his campaign and, and his activities um, with uh, groups that were supporting his agenda um, uh, publicly through paid television ads, etc. Um, so it went from this 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 thing that he had sort of announced with a great fanfare in that summer um, and and gotten a lot of accolades from the press on and where he sort of went too far. You know, as you pointed out, I think he, he at some points mentioned it was going to be an ind- quote unquote independent commission when in reality it wasn't, he had appointed it. He could ar- obviously argue, I want this commission to do what I want it to do. But once you say it's going to be independent, it's harder to say um, and justify moments when, you, when you're when you going to tell the commission, do this, don't do this. And then less than a year later in the legislative deal for the budget in March, as you pointed out, he closes down, shuts down the commission, which was a surprise to some of the members of the commission um, and some of the staff. Um, and he does it for an ethics deal. You know, if anyone out there can can cite one notable thing from that ethics deal, I would be amazed. I think the biggest piece was a pub, a pilot for public financing, but in just the comptroller's race, which doesn't make a ton of sense. Well, um, and then and then never happened. And then <laughs> nobody and then nobody happened. participated. And it was voluntary, and nobody did it. And then uh, yeah. a campaign finance program went away for a bunch of other years, and now we've got we've got one that's uh, getting off the ground now, uh, which, is, um, which is good. <laughs> um, we'll see how it goes, but yes, it's you know, um, I believe Kathleen Kathleen Rice was a DA at the time, and Nassau Nassau right. DA. Sorry, um, thank you for the correction. I, I, I it's been a long time. Oh so no, no, you. you uh, you didn't say anything definitive there, but uh, she went on to Congress. Um, so one thing, one thing I don't want to do with this discussion is try to relitigate whether you know the governor did anything inappropriate, or you know, I mean, we could get into some of that. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's try to mostly stick with 
this question of how do you sort of govern amid this firestorm, crisis communications in these moments, you know, sort of reflections on leadership and, and, and communication and government. And I think one thing you hit on that's that's not exactly this, but I did want to ask you about, as you were saying, it is this seemed to me, as you got at a little bit here, uh, just talking about former Governor Cuomo as, you know, a political figure and an immense, you know, impact on New York State in a variety of ways over more than a decade as governor. Um, this seemed to me like probably a lesson that he took from this experience about sort of giving up some more control than he needed to give up. I mean, this is someone sort of notoriously seen as a micromanager and a control freak. And this was a situation where he created this big panel, gave them subpoena power, investigatory power, made these public de declarations about, hey, you can invest investigate anybody, investigate me, investigate the lieutenant governor, et cetera. Um, and then it sort of got away from him a bit and maybe, you know, in a good way, you know, potentially pursuing real leads and so forth. But in terms of some of sort of these questions around control and message and communications and government and leadership, it seemed to be a lesson, at least that he probably took away from that about about how much control, you know, he would continue to exercise over things going forward. Is that uh, something that you saw from that? Yeah, I think I think Governor Cuomo, for better or for worse, and and oftentimes, especially in the latter half, was for worse. Like he was, he exerted a lot of control and tried to exert a lot of control over the functions of government that he was in charge of, and in general, the political world around him. And I think if there's one through line between what's going on with City Hall today and what happened with both the creation of and, and then the investigation of Moreland, the, the real answer is always don't overreact. Because that's, at least in Moreland, that's what we did. We overreacted in each instance. We overreacted to the indictments of state legislators by creating the Moreland. He overreacted by branding the Moreland as this kind of cure-all and making claims for what it would be that wasn't really true to how he wanted it to exist when the Moreland then did things that he saw as potential threats, he overreacted to those threats um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's one, if, if, if he were to say, I, I'm, I'm going to let this play out, let them subpoena whoever they want. I don't really care. I mean, at, at issue, and it's been a long time, so I may get it wrong, but I think we're subpoenas to like a, with relations to ad buys, the community to save New York was doing, which were just advancing his legislative agenda. I mean, Think in in the world of January sixth and Donald Trump, all of that seems so irrelevant and silly. Like mm -hmm. just not the voters would 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 not have cared at all, in my view at least. And so I think the overreaction to that to then rein them in leads to the members of the commission getting disgruntled, the shutting down of the commission in this kind of sudden, seemingly to them sudden way, which leads to them being more disgruntled, and then. Um, allowing and giving room for the U.S. attorney to kind of, to step in and decide he's going to um, get involved in it. We kept making that mistake of overreacting to each moment, trying to fix and make perfect a situation that was obviously an error. Put aside the right or the wrong, you know, the ethics, the good and the bad. Or did, did he do anything inappropriate? It was just 
stupid. It was just all very stupid. Um, and at the time, it, it didn't feel that way, right? It felt in it felt like everyone cared deeply about what the Moreland Commission was doing. It felt like everyone cared about whether the governor had quote unquote interfered with the Moreland Commission. Commission that everyone cared about what uh, the investigation that the U.S. Attorney had launched in response. And in reality, as shown by both his reelection then, his reelection four years later, and today, where I imagine most people who may be listening to this don't even know what we're talking about. It didn't matter. It it just didn't. It wasn't very important. Um, and a lot of time, if anything was was unfortunate about it, probably is a lot of time and effort and energy was wasted on something that didn't serve the public interest, period. Um, and I think that's for the mayor, going back to your first question, he stops in the middle of what he has said over and over again and still says is the most pressing issue facing New York, the migrant issue stops focusing on that to immediately return to New York City to do we don't really know what, um, that's an overreaction. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. And that's what it's hard. It's really hard to to not give in to that to that um to that instinct when you're in when you're you're sort of a deer in headlights. But it's important to because again, as shown by Moreland, sometimes and as shown by the investigation to former mayor Bill de Blasio, a lot of times these investigations don't really result in anything that's all that important or severe. Um, and the best way to ensure that they do, uh, or the best, the the worst way to handle them, and the best way to ensure that you do give prosecutors something to to chew on, is by overreacting. Um, well, this which- is like one of Adams's aides who they apparently turned over because she was telling people to delete text messages. Now, yeah, that might be that might be an overreaction. I mean, it probably is, but. But also it, it makes you look guilty and maybe sometimes it's just a freak out and there's nothing really that bad in the text messages that you're saying for people to delete. But also if you're freaking out that much, maybe there's some uh, fire there where there's some smoke. I mean that's that's where we get into this tricky territory of are you overreacting because you know there's there's problems here? Are you overreacting because you know that there might be some things that do get uncovered and you're starting to freak out? Or are you overreacting just because you want to control the narrative so much, but in the end, there isn't actually really anything there? I mean, you know, those things are different in different places. I mean, the the degree to which I, I don't know how close it came for there to be indictments in the Cuomo-Moreland situation, but seemingly... Bill de Blasio was really close and and people close to Bill de Blasio were really close uh, back in in, you know, leading up to the decision in 2017 where they did not charge anybody there. Um, so a lot of these things are are on the edge. Right. I mean, what what in some ways could be overreacting could in other ways be people freaking out because they've got something to hide. It's it's really hard to it's impossible to know people's motivations. Um, it's it's impossible to know the answer to those questions you just posed, and I think that's part of why I I'm I remain a little um, circumspect and hesitant on prejudgment during the investigation investigatory phase because mm-hmm. we just don't know when there's an indictment we'll know because yeah. if if there yeah. were if, if the if the deletion of text messages for example leads to an obstruction of justice charge then 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 we'll know and 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 that'll and that'll be laid out. Um, I, I think it's, you know, the, the, the person who's, who has demonstrated, uh, so far, at least in the media availabilities, the right posture for the most part to adopt is 
the mayor's special counsel, Lisa Zornberg, which is is basically to say this is inappropriate for us to talk about and we're, and we're not going to talk about it. Um, Listen, even even as someone in media who you know wants as much information out there as possible about important matters, I can recognize that there are issues when you have prosecutor offices leaking information, right? I mean, this the, the the you know there are problems there. Now, we that that's not necessarily what happened. I mean, the mayor's fundraiser's home was raided, and I don't yeah. know exactly how that information got to. Uh, I believe the New York Times was the first to to cover it. So that's, you know, that's not the same thing as leaks coming out of a prosecutor's office placing information. But we've seen clearly some leaks throughout this episode and we've seen leaks in others. Now, I don't know that those are, you know, there's no world in which those are 100 percent avoidable, obviously. So there's going to be leaks. Um, You know, offices should run their offices in a way where there's as few as possible. Um Although obviously having certain information in front of the public can also be helpful in the public understanding, you know, what's going on. So that's tricky territory, but I can even acknowledge there's issues when you have selective leaks or or challenges around what information the public knows and doesn't. And I imagine, tell me if you have, you know, experience with this, that there can be an urge sometimes to actually put out more information to try to, you know, sort of combat the negative information that's in one leak or scoop or from a certain source that has a different motivation. And then you might have a, a certain motivation to say, well, why don't we leak this information to combat that? Uh, ha- have you experienced, you know, situations like that where you had to really try to try to decide what sort of tactics and strategies to use that could be really unknown in the medium and long term, but felt like the right immediate response that but but a very risky response. Absolutely. Uh, The temptation (laughs) to uh, aggressively respond and defend yourself is high. Um, And especially if you're a public official, because you're in this really rare and uncomfortable position, especially if you're if, if you're in a position like the mayor, or the governor, where basically no one can really challenge you without you asserting your authority or or, or responding aggressively. All of a sudden, it, you kind of can't, and that's and that's that's uncomfortable. Um, and I, I, you know, I can't speak to how information in, in the mayor and Mayor Adams's investigation is is reaching the media. I have no idea. I think the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District is has an excellent uh, reputation. Um, uh, in general, um, leaks happen. They're a fact of life. I would assume that the it's, I think it's fair to assume that the raid on his campaign fundraisers side wasn't coordinated considering there was a similar raid on the same day and approximately the same time of the, of a, of a different staffer. And that didn't seem to come to light until much later in our instance with Moreland. I don't believe it was the U S attorney's office that was leaking information to the press. What was happening was uh, the U.S. attorney was sending letters first, subpoenas later to the members of the Moreland Commission, and they were so disgruntled because the, the governor had, um, you know, tried to exert his authority over them that they were leaking them to the media, hmm. um, and and that was. Now you can say, well, the U.S. attorney shouldn't be sending them letters because he knows that's going to happen. Or you could say, this is a problem we created for ourselves when we set up the thing and then ran it the way we did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I, I think the, the part I took issue with at the time, which is different from how the current U.S. attorney is handling it, is the U.S. attorney, um, um, Pripahara, also publicly commented even before the investigation started on the issue. Um, and I think that um, that's inappropriate. Um, if you're if you're examining uh, someone and you're investigating them for violations of federal law, if in advance of that and during that, especially during election year, you're giving speeches and making public commentary and giving interviews, you know, trying to spout your personal opinion about it. Um, that's generally not given the amount of authority and responsibility that prosecutors and in particular prosecutors from the Southern District have. It's just it, it's just a little it's it's a little inappropriate. It's not what you should. It's not what you should be doing um, say, now. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, please. Say a little bit more about this idea of, of you know, don't feed into it, uh, you know, sort of take the stance that in a number of instances, the mayor's council has been taking at these press conferences, although sometimes the mayor answers some of the questions to give more information. And then sometimes the, the mm-hmm. council jumps in to say, uh, let me field that one. We're not going to yeah. be giving out more information. And, the, you know, the U.S. attorney's office doesn't want us to you know comment on every development that gets out in the press. But um, so so say a little something about the balance between sort of your stance that that should be the line and that should just be sort of repeated over and over again. And I do think, by the way, that if that's the line that the principal takes, you know, the mayor, the governor, whoever it might be, and the people around them about, you know, this is an ongoing investigation. I don't, I didn't do anything wrong. We're not going to comment, you know, that type of thing. Uh, If you say that over and over again, from the beginning, I do think it, it has some ability to work to some extent. Now, the more information that gets out in various leaks and scoops and other things, the press is still going to ask questions about those things. But if you do have that consistent line, I do think that is somewhat effective, uh, by the way. But talk a little bit about the balance between that stance and that advice that you're giving versus this idea of not wanting to look, you know, scared of the press or not hiding from the press. Um, You know that the press is going to be asking questions about this stuff. Like I just said, even if you do have a standard line that you just repeat over and over again, how do you sort of balance that, go about the business of governing, create good news, right? Uh, This is something I think the mayor has really been struggling with for a while now is, uh, you know, doing more of the stuff he was doing earlier in his term, which is like celebrating certain certain milestones or, you know, I mean, he's doing some of it, but he could be doing more, I think, um, you know, announcements, positive news, all that stuff, sort of crafting the public narrative that he says he should have, um, but he doesn't, you know, quite do enough to craft. So talk about that balance a little bit and sort of continuing to govern, make, you know, announcements, make good news, not look like you're hiding from the press, not look like you're scared while also sort of taking what you deem as a smart tack towards, towards some of this. Yeah, I, I, it's look. It's a hard balance, and it requires a lot of discipline. Um, you, you. The first rule is you, it's basically what you laid out. Focus all your attention and energy on everything aside from the investigation. I mean, this is the playbook that the White House adopts when there's an impeachment, which was, um, I think, first innovated under the Clinton in the Clinton impeachment. You you create one avenue, you know, one place 
where some aides or lawyers are dealing with anything related to the investigation, they're sort of in their own silo and everyone else is focused entirely on the business of government, public service, drawing attention away um, from uh, from the investigation itself, because you're not going to have much to say and there's not much you can do to affect that, as opposed to having, you know, everything revolve around the investigation, which was the the mayor's, it seems, initial instinct when the raid was first uh, announced in the press. Hmm. Um, so you look, you got to try to the city hall and the city of New York. There's always crises that you've got to deal with. There's always um, ideally if you're if you're you're managing an effective government, important and interesting announcements to make and and. Uh, probably the more creative strategies would, would involve a sort of Trumpian approach where you create new fights that distract from this one that are that are more interesting and provocative. Um, I don't always uh, agree with everything Bradley Tusk uh, does, but he had, he had an op-ed in the in the Daily News today where he recommended the mayor punch back against uh, the investigation by. You know, having Joe Manchin come up into our migrant centers and having coffee with Nikki Haley. I don't agree with that at all. In yeah, I thought that was uh, that that shocked me when I read that. Well, I, one of the things I love about Bradley is Brad, Bradley is always spoiling for a fight. That's uh, <laughs> part of his nature. But um, but I look, I, I don't agree with with the strategic premise, which is this is not an investigation coming from Joe Biden. I mean, that's just absurd. And having either your political allies or your staff do anonymous leaks, sort of tweaking uh, the Southern District and espousing political um, motivation. motivation. Yeah. That, yeah. Look, that that might be smart politics, right? His his. If you look at the poll that Maris did, which was I think a little bit flawed, he's still holding forty eight percent approval with Black voters in New York, while thirty eight percent disapprove. Now. That is far weaker than the numbers Bill de Blasio had his entire time in office in 2019, two years into his second term. His approval with black New Yorkers was 66 percent. But it's still it's still a majority. Right. And so there is you can see very clearly the messaging they're they're trying to do in each of these media availabilities. Some member of the media probably maybe I I don't know, (laughs) queued up, says, don't you think that this is a politically motivated attack on? And he sort of laughs it off. Um, but that's unwise because you're just, uh, you know, it's, it's poking the bear. It's poking. It's yeah. poking the bear. But, uh, you know, when you when you're w- with like a pencil um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. and you, you're really yeah. you're just asking to get eaten. Just don't do that. It's it's stupid. It's, you know, similarly is come, going running from D.C. to New York because your AIDS house has been raided by the FBI. That is stupid. Um, but. Doing the the to back to, to what Bradley had proposed, doing interesting things that will capture the media's attention that are unrelated to the investigation, that's smart. Um, right. I mean, Donald Trump is an awful, terrible human being um, and uh, uh, a cancer on America. Um, but he was brilliant at manipulating the press's attention from one fire to another. And I think there is something to be learned from that strategy of – you, if you're willing to be provocative, and Mayor Adams certainly is, that you can you can um, steer steer the eyes of the media away from stuff that that is sensitive that you don't have a good answer to to fights that you might more uh, like to have, and perhaps that's part of what they're doing with being so aggressive on the cuts in the city budget. I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but that would be that would be the strategy. When we were dealing with the Moreland Commission, we were putting out more press releases 
um, and making more announcements about what government did than we had probably done my entire time there. And that was in part to show, number one, we weren't distracted. We were doing our job. But number two was to try to force the press as much as possible to cover things besides speculating about the investigation where we didn't have anything we could offer um, uh, that was compelling or was going to flip the story in part because it didn't really matter what we said. You know, we could have released all our emails to the press and had the governor go out and sit with them for two days and answer every question. And at the end of the day, if the U.S. attorney's office wasn't willing to say there's nothing to see here, it didn't really matter. And that's the same dynamic that the mayor's in now. So until you get to that point where it's clear there won't be an indictment, there is zero benefit to talking about this. There just there just isn't. I, I don't I know it's, it's normal to especially as public official to want to. Uh, respond to defend yourself or perhaps to punch back, but it's just never, it's never the wise course of action in these instances. At least I've never seen it work. If someone out there, uh, <laughs> show me an example where when an elected official was being investigated, they attacked the prosecutor and all of a sudden everything changed, you know, by all means. I mean, I think, you know, the, the idea of sort of flooding the zone uh, in some ways is, is interesting, you know, there's no shortage of announcements, obviously, coming from the Adams administration. When I say, you know, that the mayor doesn't seem to be doing quite as many things to sort of generate good news, you know, I'm sure that people could take issue with that because he's out there doing a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, he's he's cutting ribbons and he's going and giving remarks. But I think, you know, there's so much of that stuff that is seemingly sort of on the like, you know, it's almost like tier, you know, tier three or something of, of, you know, four or five tiers. It's like, oh, it's an interesting announcement or it's an interesting appearance at, a, at an event that a mayor should go to. It doesn't look, you know, sort of like he's he's searching for stuff to go to. Um, uh, but, you know, more interesting things and more, you know, again, as you said, maybe provocative things or things that for Adams, especially get at the idea that people are questioning some of sort of like his, you know, a, how his government is running on basics and B, whether he has sort of a bigger sweeping agenda that's missing sort of marquee items. So it's kind of fascinating. He's, he's getting criticism on both those fronts that I think both are, are relatively valid. Although I don't need, I don't think I don't buy into the line that a lot of people uh, say that he needs to have, you know, bigger marquee things. I mean, I think he's got a couple of those. And I think part of what should be his marquee thing that he wanted to be his marquee thing was making government run better. But he's really been struggling with that in part because of challenges around the migrant crisis, but also challenges around sort of vacancies at all these agencies that he's done very little to fill and and, and other things. But I do think you know, from my perspective, that he is, they are doing a good bit, but it's not necessarily things that seem to be grabbing the sort of press and public attention in a, in a way that potentially could be more helpful to the city and also to his, you know, political standing. Um, I, I agree. Yeah, and I, I don't, I, I don't, I've, I've sort of felt um, unsure on how I feel about this strategy of we're going to do off topic media availabilities mm -hmm. once a week on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I get it. It's it's it, it's kind of smart in in the sense of you're hoping that every other announcement you do the rest of the week, you don't have people shouting off topics at the mayor. You don't have the mayor answering off topics and then distracting from that story by giving an answer, say, on the investigation or something else. But in this instance, you're basically then just creating an hour 
where um, they're likely going to just ask about this and you're not going to have much to say. And by the end, the mayor, you can see, loses a little bit of the discipline he probably needs and sometimes adds too much to an answer, which which is natural. Every pol- every public official has that happen when, you know, to the earlier question of how do you not look scared while sticking to a firm line? What we had to face with Moreland was um, right after uh, the investigation was announced. We knew the very first moment the governor was going to go before the press was he was going to get asked about it. He was going to have to give some answers, towing that line of not looking scared, but also not um, uh, giving too much away or, or saying things that would, would create problems. Um, and so we, we, we did a planning call on it. We ended up deciding to do an economic development announcement in Buffalo. Um, this was in uh, late July. And um, I remember flying with him on the plane to Buffalo. Um, you know, I'd done it many times, but you could sort of tell that he was he was both focused and and probably a little bit a little bit anxious because this was a high stakes moment. We went to the event. There were there were folks there. He gives his remarks. We then did a separate room for the Q and A. I remember him going into the bathroom to collect himself right before he went. And then we went out and he just stood there and took questions for 45 minutes to an hour um, and 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 really answered, you know, both defended his point of view on it, which was I created this commission. Um, and so if I decide, I, you know, it needs to be shut down, that's that's what I'm going to do. I have nothing to hide, et cetera. Um, we also had, had had folks from the staff calling around to different commission members who were friendly with with to um, put out statements of support. Um, at the end of the day, we flew back and we felt pretty good about ourselves, um, only to wake up the next day to a front page story in The New York Times where the U.S. attorney had sent a new letter to us, which had promptly been leaked, saying that uh, calling around asking for supportive statements might be witness tampering. <laughs> um, obviously, no witness tampering charge was ever brought. Um, but I think it, it just shows you that it's it's you you end up in this odd dynamic where you if you if you go out and really try to defend yourself you are creating the risk of creating an adverse response um on the other side and so the the best thing you can do um even though it's hard is with regards to the investigation stick to one line and and leave it at that um and then and just deal with the uncomfortable nature of press asking lots of questions and then to go about your day job as aggressively as possible, create other interesting stories through the nature of your work, um, and don't get distracted functionally within your team by having certain team members dealing with this, uh, dealing with the investigation and everyone else siloed off from it, which is also, by the way, a really important and good uh, process to put in place to to protect yourself legally. I'm speaking here with Matt Wing. He is a communications veteran. He's worked for elected officials and private companies. He worked with then public advocate Bill de Blasio and then Governor Andrew Cuomo. He's worked for Uber for quite a stretch. He uh, helped out on Catherine Garcia's 2021 mayoral campaign and has had a number of other clients. He uh, recently founded the communications and marketing consultancy Wingspan. Uh, Do you have a few more minutes, Matt? Can we touch on a couple other things? Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah, uh, we're going a little long here, but I appreciate all your your insights and thoughts. There's so many things about 
the Cuomo administration and Cuomo years, I want to ask you, and even the de Blasio public advocate years, but we're not even going to get to, to some of that. Uh, but, but a few more questions for you. Um, just in terms of where this goes from here for Mayor Adams, where we are right now, you're looking at a situation where in your experience that we've mostly been touching on with this investigation related to the Moreland Commission, that really was happening as you you got at right as the governor at the time was going into a reelection campaign. He had he had won his first term in 2010. He was going to try to win a second term in 2014. All of this happened in 2013, going into 2014. And so much of this was really breaking as he was facing his 2014 Democratic primary challenge from Zephyr Teachout, who was running on this um, anti-corruption platform, in part informed by what was happening around Moreland. Um, now, she didn't get a lot of institutional support and, and, you know, the governor wound up winning that primary pretty handily. But that campaign centered a lot around what was going on with this. Uh, he wound up obviously winning a second term by a wide margin, both in the primary and the general election. Um, Mayor Adams is here a little earlier in the cycle, but we're not that far from June 2025 when the Democratic primary for mayor will be. There's a whole bunch of people sort of circling. There was already a lot of talk about challenging him, especially sort of from the broader left, since he's more of a centrist. Um, so say a little bit about uh, this investigation hanging over the mayor. We have no idea when it might wrap up. It is the type of investigation where you would expect when it's if if it sort of concludes in some way, especially vis-a-vis -vis the mayor himself, that the U.S. attorney's office would issue a statement because that's now sort of become expected practice given the high profile uh, individuals involved. That's what happened with Bill de Blasio. I don't believe you got that actually with Cuomo and Moreland. Um, we we but, did, just just not until Oh, okay, you did. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took quite a while. Um but anyways, just say a little bit about sort of what you see for Adams here, the electoral calendar, the investigation. Are there things that are very important to sort of think about, keep in mind as he's navigating both governing and the political calendar, opponents coming after him? Uh, this is this is really tricky territory here. Any particular important things for everybody to watch for or pieces of advice as you know they're handling this on the campaign side and the government side i think um i mean in, in in the governor's case it ultimately did not prove a winning issue with the voters i think zephyr teacher got far more press attention and did better in the primary than she otherwise would have and i think that was also due to again us overreacting um a, a sort of long shot attempt to kick her off the ballot, which was ill-advised and ill-executed, failed. That got her extra attention and and motivated her supporters. Um the uh you know there was this famous moment where she tries to go shake his hand at a parade and he sort of ignores her and that got a lot of press attention. In, in retrospect, who cares if you shake someone's hand? It doesn't really matter. No. Um, I think, uh, but ultimately the governor prevailed and, and then against Rob Astorino, he crushed him. So it didn't, all of this stuff that again, at the time to all of us felt so vital and, and important and, and, or scary, like it just, it just didn't really matter. 
Um, certainly it didn't matter with the voters. And so I think it's important for, to the extent the mayor's team um, can focus on that, they should they should remember that and focus on the basics about what does matter for re-election, which is delivering on what they promised, in particular with regards to public safety. Um, and well, also, and, and- quote unquote, getting stuff done, um, which is a, a ripoff of um, a, a Garcia uh, uh, quote, if, if, uh, which, which no one is, which I will call out, uh, pridefully, but, um, uh, I think, I think that's, that's important. I also think though, he is vulnerable. Um, his, as I noted, even before this in, in, there was a Q poll in February of this year, his support amongst Democrats was 43% approved, 38 disapprove, uh, amongst black New Yorkers, 52% approval, 29 disapprove. Um, and under with Hispanics, he was underwater, um, 45 disapproved, 33% approved. De Blasio, again, in, in his second term, also Q poll. Dems, he was 53% to 34% approved. With Black New Yorkers, 66% to 23%. And with Latinos, it was a, it was a split, 40-40. So he's, he's a lot. We, we often, I think, in politics are learning, uh, you know, following the lesson of the last campaign. And so I, I think a lot of folks think the mayor is invulnerable to a serious challenge because Bill de Blasio seemed in the press to be really weak and then didn't face a serious challenge and, and handily won re-election. In reality, Mayor Bill de Blasio had a strong ma- mandate with the Democratic Party in New York, His almost his entire time in office up until I think the presidential stuff kind of tipped him over. Um, and then COVID obviously also created some some issues. Um Mayor Adams hasn't had that level of support. He just hasn't, um, including in, at his at his peak when he first came into office. And I, I I think you know he's still his base remains Black New Yorkers. He's still in the green there, but in in a much weaker position than the mayor was. It, but uh, it only matters if he has an opponent. And right now there isn't one. There just there isn't. In, in addition, he, you know, I think folks rightly recognize his fundraising strength. He has two point five million dollars in the bank, I think. But now having to fundraise for his legal defense fund, that's going to divert energy and attention away right. from raising for reelection, which he was doing in in earnest. So I think, regardless of it, it would be wrong to sort of, and not not morally wrong. It would just be ill advised to for folks who are looking to potentially take him on to plan against uh, an indictment, because you just can't control that. You don't know if that's going to happen. But I think a coalition of progressives of Manhattan and um, parts of Brooklyn, where he's particularly unpopular, um, along with Hispanic voters who he is unpopular with, that's a winning coalition. And uh, if there's a candidate out there who can put that together, and using the matching fund system, raise enough money to mount a significant campaign. I think they will. I think they will have a very good shot at at winning. Um, the Garcia campaign was outspent, something like ten to one, and and she came within a few thousand votes um, in ranked choice voting, of course. But still, so I think that that shows you that the that they're the that he he is he is certainly vulnerable to a serious challenge. And the best thing he can probably do is make it very difficult for anyone to come into the race by projecting an era of inevitability and by discouraging anyone who supports him from supporting anyone else. Um, because if you don't have the money to go off the ground, then you have nowhere to go. Uh, all interesting thoughts. 
I'm not going to let you bait me into a discussion of the 2025 primary right now because we could then go on for another hour about that. So I'm not <laughs> going to I'm not going to go there. Uh, since you advised the Garcia for mayor campaign in 2021 in our last couple of minutes here, let me ask you a couple of quick questions, one on that and then one on something else. But um, looking back on that campaign, anything you think, I mean, the, the, the final margin wound up being so narrow. This was obviously a campaign that came out of nowhere, you know, a relatively unknown um, civil servant who had risen to high levels of city government, but really, uh, you know, had never run for office before, uh, exceeded all expectations, got the New York Times editorial board endorsement, which was a huge piece of that, of course, and and and, and so forth. Um, but looking back on it in the narrow margin there, anything that keeps you up at night sometimes or anything you think about that could have you think made the difference there uh the most prominent possible answer to that maybe is not having tried to figure out some sort of ranked choice alliance with Maya Wiley to try to be uh you know on more Maya Wiley voters ballots in some way shape or form so those votes trickle down in the final round uh in a bigger way um, that that would be, you know, one of the big what ifs. Uh, but anything that's that's kept you up at night, so to speak, about mm-hmm. that campaign? I I sleep very well, <laughs> like as Mayor Adams always says, um, but not because I go around telling people uh, to be ethical, just because I love to sleep. Um, <laughs> but I think she ran an extraordinary campaign. Um, I was I was happy to be a, a tiny part of it, but her entire um, team um was exceptional um her uh her campaign manager monica hansen was was great um and uh i think the way she handled uh the ranked choice um equation actually was was perfect um and is the reason she came in second specifically um the deal um with the yang campaign um which uh uh, which helps uh, get her into that sort of final round. I don't think there was um, um, an opportunity to uh, uh, do some sort of additional lines with Maya Wiley that would have helped. If in looking at the math there, the vast majority of her votes went to Catherine anyway. So I, I, I think that kind of, that, that wasn't necessary. Um, no other campaign as I saw it was really, thinking about the implications of ranked choice voting because it was the first time and the system was a little bit difficult to understand. Um, I think Catherine was an, another senior advisor on her team um, who, uh, in full disclosure, is my girlfriend, Caitlin Lewis, was really focused on that piece of it and in particular working with the Yang campaign on getting that key cross door well, that key Yang endorsement for second place, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which, which put her in the ballgame. The thing that I think about um, which could have made the difference is an appeal to Hispanic voters. I think they were really up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in particular, um, given that her last name was Garcia um, uh, through, I believe her, her prior marriage. Yeah. Uh, uh, not that I would ever advocate misleading voters, but that's just that you, that along with a platform and or a strategy to really communicate with um, a subset of those voters in a real targeted and thoughtful way could have, um, could have made the difference. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there's one sort of area where I would have gone back and focused on that would have probably been it. Um, but you know, this is what I love about elections <laughs> is, is we don't really know at the end of the day, why yeah. people vote one way or the other. We, we, we guess and we hope and we, and we make assumptions and later we look back and say it was this, or it wasn't that clearly the New York times editorial board endorsement was massively important. Um, in that election and continues, I, I think, for anyone who were to have a successful challenge of the current mayor, a path to the Times endorsement would be vital. And I think that's yeah. a hard path because they do not lightly endorse against an incumbent, even in the governor's case in 2014, when they endorsed against um, his running mate in the primary. They endorsed, I believe, Tim Wu for lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. Um they still endorsed, and they didn't endorse him in the primary. They still endorsed him in the general. Um, that's, and they really did not like him. You know, they and, really, and they went on. They went on to endorse him in uh, in 2018 as well. 2018, and I yeah. like they they that 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 group of individuals at the Times editorial board, having sat in on a few meetings with him and them, it was re- it was it was like the worst Thanksgiving dinner you've ever been to. It was awful. <laughs> um, but that that's going to be vital um, the, to do and, and yeah. getting over that incumbency hump is, is going to be tough. Uh, I'm trying not to get baited into this, but I do want to say uh, uh, <laughs> I'm saying that lightly. Obviously, I, there's so many things here I want to talk about, but I just I'm, uh, in the interest of time, I'm not going to. But I do two very quick things on that one, Eric Adams and his uh independent expenditures on his behalf, especially also really did focus on Latino voters, as you mentioned, there is a possible, uh, you know, thing that the Garcia campaign could have done more of. Um, and two, you're right that uh, the vast majority of the Maya Wiley ballots went to Garcia over Adams, but there were still, if I remember correctly, well over 70,000 extinguished ballots when Wiley got eliminated, meaning mm-hmm. they didn't have Adams or Garcia ranked. Mm-hmm. So uh, just food for thought, you know, I mean, I, I get you can't capture, you know, the Garcia campaign captured a lot of my Wiley votes, but I, I would, t- you know, I would, I would probably argue the point a little bit that, that some sort of alliance with Wiley uh, or, or figuring out some sort of joint something appearances even if they don't say they're supporting each other as number two or whatever uh yeah could could have made could have made a difference i would assume that those ballots to some degree must have been votes for um uh what uh for for uh, diana morales that then went to wiley and then would never have gone to garcia because they're they would you know they'd be too they would see her as too moderate but it's hard again it's hard to know maybe you're right um but it just wasn't in the cards you know that would have been too that would be, you can't you you you'd have to convince both sides to do that and i think that was going to be too difficult you can um go after pockets of voters who might be receptive to you um so that's why that that one i i don't think if you play the tape back if you if you went back in a time machine and you know did the outreach you're 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 still you're probably not going to get it <laughs> All right. We're going to have to do a part two because, uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of things uh, that I wanted to ask you here that we're not going to get to. But I appreciate all the time Matt wing. So we'll 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 figure out a part two sometime down the line eventually. But um, thank you for all the time. Thanks for the conversation around crisis communications, governing while under investigation and all the other things we touched on here. 
Really appreciate it. Uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times, Matt Wing is a communications professional. Uh, he has worked for elected officials, including Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo. He's worked for Uber, and he now has his own firm, Wingspan. Uh, Matt, thanks a lot for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.